Hello and welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven. You can find me on socialworldpodcast.com and on Twitter at Dave Niven. It's a weekly podcast that engages with the social world in all its variety. It's got news, reviews, guests and opinions. And you're welcome. Today's uh, episode uh, has a, a lovely interview, a really good interview, with Jonathan Singer, who uh, actually is the host of the uh, Social Work podcast based in Philadelphia. And Jonathan's actually been podcasting now for oh, six years and is so experienced, and he's given me some help in actually setting the Social World podcast up. And today I'm going to talk to Jonathan about a variety of things, but principally focusing on uh, youth suicide, because Jonathan's background is in social work as well. After that, I think I'm just going to give some reflections about my memories of Sri Lanka, a troubled, a troubled country, but a paradise uh, and a very kind of contradictory place. So I hope you're interested and um, give us some feedback. We're getting some at last. We're actually beginning to get established, and I'm grateful to you for that. So, But I would like more feedback. I'd like to get involved with you, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about what you might like to hear in the future. So from now, also uh, keep in touch. Send in your comments. And possibly, too, we could do some interviews with some of you for the future. I'd like that. Thanks. Jonathan Singer, Assistant Professor of Social Work at Temple University, the founder and the host of the Social Work Podcast since 2007, based in Philadelphia. You teach, you instruct, and one of the things, Jonathan, it's so good to have you on the program, but Jonathan, one of the things that you're specifically interested in that you told me about was youth suicide. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what, what interested you in the first place in that subject, but also what your current sort of thinking in about developments and how you're actually getting a hold of data and, and how you're actually pursuing it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, David, thanks so much for having me on your podcast series. Um, I, I, I got interested in youth suicide when I was first out of my um, graduate program in the mid-90s. I got a job as a social worker in a mobile crisis unit for children and adolescents. And what we did all day was talk to suicidal kids. And as my career has has moved on, I have gotten interested in understanding more about some of the questions about how kids get services, what sort of services they get, what's most effective. And mm -hmm. so that's one of the reasons why I've gone back, where I went back, got a PhD, and am now doing research. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how do you work with families where there's a suicidal kid? Yeah. What we we know that uh, high family conflict or low uh, family support, particularly low parental support, is a significant risk factor for suicide. So how do you change that? Like if you're a social worker out there and you're working with a family and there's a suicidal kid, what do you do that's most effective at helping parents uh, be the best parents they can be for this kid? 
Yeah. Uh, certainly, when it when a kid is suicidal, it it throws into question everything. Right? <laughs> it's like, do I do I stand firm on bedtime? Right? Do I do I let them stay home if they're feeling you know not well? What do I tell their siblings about this suicide stuff? So, all of those questions, I think, are really important practice questions that there are very few good answers to. Okay. Um, Different and what goes on there, though. I mean, you, 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 the way you're talking there obviously means that you've got a, a, an input with the child you need, you've an input with the parents, and you've an input with the siblings, you've probably got an input with the community, you've probably also got inputs with school and education and all sorts of other places where that child interacts. It's a hugely complex situation, isn't it? Hugely complex. That is exactly right. And and because it's so complicated and because everybody gets so anxious around the topic of suicide and and I think you know for the most part rightly so right because <laughs> we're talking about a life and death situation but there's so much anxiety about it that everybody at every level sort of micro meso macro and in every system whether it's a policy or a direct practice or um, an agency supervisor everybody hunkers down and just gets myopic and focuses on their area. So the practitioners just get really focused on dealing with the parent and the child and they don't think about um, the school environment specifically or the hospital. They don't think much about well what can be supports. Even though everybody knows this is important, they just have so much to focus on in their area that it's a really challenging area to establish good continuity of care and good um, uh, um, what's the word? Sort of a, a inter inter system uh, or inter level uh, thinking about it. Okay, yeah, I got you. I mean, and also, I'm not sure, but I suspect you would have great sympathy with the social worker who's actually got to pull all these threads together um, in in some kind of um, you know generic approach. Because ultimately, you know, making the best assessment needs the best data. And the best data can come from all these different angles before you actually analyze it and put some plan into action. So I, I, I imagine that that underlines the complexity. Absolutely. Well, and in the UK, you guys have done some amazing things about suicide prevention that we haven't done in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, for example... Uh, my understanding is that acetaminophen, Tylenol, you have to buy them in bubble packs these days in the UK. <laughs> like you can't get a, a bottle of 200 pills of acetaminophen. Is that correct? It is correct. You, you, you do now get these um, regulated small amounts. Yeah, and that is, that's one small thing that is, it's not a small thing. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a policy level change that you can be the best direct practice social worker and really working with the individual and the family and if you know that the kid can go out and buy a bottle of 200 Tylenol and then taking 12 of those could result in death again you're 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 limited in a certain sense um, yes indeed and so, my understanding was that the actual drugs um, even prescription drugs were one of the more favored forms of suicide so it, it, it had even more resonance when you're, you're giving sort of statistics like that and there's legislation like that I presume. Absolutely. You know and one of the areas that is really hot in the media of course is cyberbullying. Yeah. 
Right. And yeah, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for journalists because they walk into their meeting in the morning. The editor says, um, "A kid, one town over, died by suicide," um, and we got to have something ready for the four o'clock news. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> and so then the reporter who could have been covering a bank robbery the day before. Um, you know, and and something else the day before that has to go out and not only find experts but also make uh, a coherent narrative yeah. out of this thing that we have just talked about being so incredibly complicated that 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 social workers, people for whom this is their job to understand, will have a really hard time piecing it together. And so one of the things that happens is that the media likes to work under the formula of something plus bullying equals suicide. Right, I've got you. Yeah, I always remember here um, when I did a lot of media work um, being phoned up by people on news desks and virtually, I'm not kidding you, they would say, do you think you could get me somebody that's been sexually abused for the six o'clock news? Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're looking for a narrative. I know, I know. Yeah. But, work, but working with the media sometimes can be, you know, we, we have taken some strides. I mean, look, you're embracing the media with a highly successful social work podcast. I mean, essentially now embracing the media seems to be one of the few ways to actually balance some of these scales that are around. Um, for example, the bit about um, working with trainee journalists, get social workers in there to on trainee journalist courses and get journalists in on trainee social workers courses just to get each other a bit of an idea about what their world is like. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant idea. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, what you just mentioned about the podcast that I do and, of course, what you're doing with your podcast is that um, we, we are becoming the media yes. in a very real way. The folks that listen to your podcast are getting news filtered through your social work lens. Mm. I, I, I love it. I, I just think it's such an, uh, uh, an enlightening um, uh, development in media. Let me ask you something else just, be, just before we finish this subject though, Jonathan. I'm very interested in the suicide thing. Gender and in America I suppose we're talking state by state so we're talking geography as well. Are there any kind of real interesting differentials because I'd heard that in the states when you're talking about cyberbullying and, su and suicides accordingly twice as many girls are bullied than boys but twice as many boys commit suicide would that be something a figure that you might be familiar with I don't know that figure um, and I probably should <laughs> um, but what I do know is that um, this debate about how does traditional or offline bullying differ from online bullying or cyberbullying, yeah. one of the distinguishing factors is that offline bullying tends to be more physical, yeah. right? We think about the schoolyard, kids getting beaten up, you know, harassed, picked on, that sort of thing. Um, cyberbullying or online bullying tends to be more relational. Like you can't reach through your cell phone and punch somebody. Um, but you can taunt them. You can, you know, um, call them names, do all sorts of things, and um, and that tends to be something that girls do more than boys. And so one of the big differences between cyberbullying and offline bullying is that it, it tends to be more girls than 
uh, then engage in offline bullying. Um, and so the, the that makes sense. That does make sense when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. So so you get kids online. It's more relational, and it's more girls as a result. Um, and boys die by suicide more often anyway. Right. So girls make attempts, you know, three to four times as often as boys, but boys die by suicide two to three times as often. And it's because they use more fatal means. They tend to use guns. They tend to jump. Um, they tend to hang themselves, that sort of thing. That, and that's reflected in adults too, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, absolutely. What about the geography? Because over here we... We can pick up statistics, for example, taking Europe as a base, whatever, although it's huge. I mean, just the same as the states are huge, but are, are there huge differences between regions of, of, of the states? Yes, the, the, the western mountainous areas for suicide in general, uh, there's more suicides there. But, but those are also the areas that are more rural, and what we know for youth suicide is that Youth in rural areas die by suicide twice as often as youth in urban areas. It's not interesting. It is. And, of course, there are all sorts of questions. I mean, in the United States, we have guns, right? We have lots of guns. Yeah. We have a gazillion guns. And uh, guns are uh, more common in rural areas. They are more, um, some would say, part of the culture in rural areas. And... Um, and I did a study that looked at how social workers talked to parents following a suicide assessment. And these were social workers in rural areas. And they brought up the issue of guns. And one of the things that they said about working with folks in rural areas is they said, guns are so ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're like furniture. Mm -hmm. People forget that they have guns around. And so part of our education is not saying, oh, by the way, guns are dangerous. Guns can kill, like they know that, or people can kill with guns, depending on what your politics is. But they have to be reminded, do you have guns laying around? Because they don't see them. Because there are so many, and they're so, they're so ubiquitous. Um, and so, you know, there's all, all of these factors, like why would rural youth die more often? Is it because they have fewer mental health services? Is it because they're more isolated? Is it because when there's conflict with their parents or their peers, they have less alternative forms of support and interaction? Is it because there's, um, uh, these days, less high-speed internet connection? And so youth who tend to be connected to people virtually, they can't? Or how much of it has to do with the presence of guns, which are the most lethal means that people can use to die by suicide? It's a very complicated question, and to my knowledge, there's been no um, sort of gold standard empirical answer. No, I mean, fascinating, everything. that I mean, just, just one thing, too, is that the way forward, right, although there's no, as you said, there's no magic answer here, but in terms of what you've found so far to be useful, let's put it that way, as opposed to any kind of um, real cure, but useful, would you say getting involved in education or getting involved in community groups or getting involved where young people congregate or getting involved uh, on the media, either 
or all of them as a kind of composite approach to, to trying to both raise awareness of the issues, all of the issues you've raised, but also of the fact that help is available and what that actually looks like. Well, I certainly think that all of those factors are important, right? I, I think that I think that having a um, a community awareness and understanding mm -hmm. of uh, suicide risk, of protect factors, of 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 suicide not being uh, or suicidal thoughts and behaviors not being as a result of a moral failing, right? The classic thing that we deal with in social work, like, why are people poor? Oh, it's because they're bad people. No. Um, you know, why are people suicidal? Because they're weak. No, right? It's not that. So I think having a community understanding of what contributes to suicide risk is an important buffer and an important way of reducing stigma. I was so lucky to be involved in Philadelphia in the creation of the very, what we think of as the very first suicide prevention mural in the world. It was uh, a 15-month project involved over a thousand people in the Philadelphia community and it was called Finding the Light Within and it was um, a, a mural that was designed um, by an artist, James Burns, from Philadelphia's Mural Arts Program, but it was painted by people in the community. Mm -hmm. right? Sort of paint by numbers, but when it was finished, uh, it was put up a massive mural on the side of a building and it was truly an effort of the community where they could come get around suicide prevention and and do something that wasn't sort of behavioral health yeah. and yet it addressed the issue of suicide. One of the groups that came was a group of firefighters. I mean, this is a group that typically does not get involved in mental health services and okay. behavioral health interventions and yet they were they were so eager to participate because one of their own had died by suicide the previous year. Oh, it's fascinating. Jonathan, I'm afraid we have to pull it together here and finish but I'd really appreciate coming back and talking to you some more in the future about how, if half of the things that you've started threads running there we could talk about. It would be absolutely fascinating. I really appreciate you giving this interview today and um, wish you all the best in the future at um, Social Work Podcast. Well, David, thank you so much for having me and for taking the time, and I really appreciate the, uh, the work that you're doing on, um, on your podcast, and having it be every other week is amazing. So it's an honor and a privilege to be a guest on your show. Thank you. Thank you. I was listening to the news about the um, Commonwealth Summit in Colombo in Sri Lanka and remembering my time over there. I went across there about 15 years ago and some of the memories are so vivid today and hearing stories about the place just brings everything back. It's such a contradictory country. The people are lovely. In general, the, the population are the most gentle, welcoming, kindest people that I've come across uh, and travels abroad. I went across there for a conference, for a social work conference, and it was the first conference that had been held there for about 11 years of any substance. 
because of the war, because of the troubles, and because of the conflict between the government and the Tamil Tigers from the north. And even the hotel that I was staying in had um, machine gun posts outside. It had um, bunkers there. The police were uh, obvious everywhere. The army was in great numbers. But yet life seemed to just carry on as normal. And of course, what I was across there about was to do with um, sex tourism, was the, the men from Western industrialized countries going across there to um, abuse children. And like many places on the Pacific Rim, Sri Lanka was vulnerable and a target for thousands of men from the West going across there. Now, the police, I'd done some work with um, Interpol and um, their uh, Offences Against Minors group, and that was the way that I got an introduction to the police in Sri Lanka. And so when I was across there, I went and discussed things with them, and they were asking what should be done or what they thought should be done, and I was giving them my opinion. Uh, my view, really, then, was the same as it is now. Um, I think most people are aware of what policy changes Thailand made for um, serious drugs trafficking in that they made it uh, almost mandatory that huge sentences, heavy sentences, and even in some cases the death penalty was handed out uh, to try and discourage people from flooding Thailand with um, Class A drugs. And I felt somehow the same in some respects, not necessarily for the death penalty, but certainly for a very serious lengthy prison sentence should be handed out and should be made public, should be worldwide, should be, should be publicized uh, as far and wide as it could, and certain cases been made examples of. <clears throat> now, as it happens, that didn't quite happen, but um, there are certain changes that did happen, and I'm pleased to say that I believe now it's one of the lesser destinations for paedophiles, lesser destinations for men that want to actually abuse children, although I'm pretty certain that it goes on in quite significant numbers still. But as you come into Colombo in the airport now, and I believe the money was funded by, um, I think, Save the Children, there's an enormous uh, billboard that says, Welcome to Sri Lanka. If you abuse our children, we guarantee you 20 years at least in horror class accommodation. So, in terms of actually stating intent, it was a start. The complexity, though, begins a bit when you look deeper into the situation. When I walked along the beachfront in Sri Lanka, in Colombo, um, within about five minutes, I was offered everything under the sun, apart from money exchanges, um, duplicate uh, designer gear, watches, cameras, you name it. But also within the first five or ten minutes I was offered children, young children, both sexes, under five, um, for the price of a pint of beer. It was just an absolutely stunning event for me. I mean, obviously I knew it went on, but so openly, so blatantly, and it, it just shocked me. Talking with NGOs in Sri Lanka, I came across this, the situation in, the de in its depth because often there's no, there's no welfare system there. 
So there's no way that anybody who hasn't got any work or hasn't got any source of income can actually um, feed the family. And often the example given was, say there was a family of seven or eight children, neither parent was working, none of the children were able to bring in much income, and so the only income they relied on was from some of the very young children in the family getting money from the sex trade and from Western men. Now, there's no way on earth that anybody would condone that. That should be interrupted. It should be interrupted totally and the children should be prevented from having to experience that kind of activity. But remember, when that money dried up, when that income stopped, the children essentially starved because no other way of getting income was available short of um, charity and foreign NGOs. So there's a complexity to it. But the gentility of the people and the quiet kind of acceptance of their lot was just amazing to behold. Another event occurred later on that I heard of. A friend of mine put a lot of um, effort into raising money to um, work with victims of the tsunami, which has happened, as you know, many years later. But much of uh, Sri Lankan infrastructure in certain parts was wiped out, and many schools um, and, and houses were completely ruined. And one such place in the north, um, he found that an orphanage had actually been flattened. Um, the money was raised, the orphanage was rebuilt, um, people were hired, and he went across to visit it. And when he got there, what he found was that the adults involved with looking after the children had been captured one day by, they believe, the Tamil Tigers, lined up against the walls of the orphanage and shot. The children witnessed it. This is the stark reality, the absolute polarity of activity in a country like Sri Lanka. The violence, the, the, the crazy kind of war that's gone on for such a long time. Yet, juxtaposed with that, it's like paradise. The paradise islands and the people in, in general are so beautiful. It's a real problem and it's a real puzzle. And so when I heard about the Commonwealth leaders' visit recently and the fact that the new government in Sri Lanka is totally denying that any human rights violations occurred, uh, totally opposite to the fact that hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands of people, were actually there willing to give evidence about their disappeared relatives. In fact, pro rata to the population it's said that by amnesty that effectively the number of people who have been so-called disappeared in Sri Lanka was only rivaled by Argentina in its heyday. And that's saying something. So again, we have this enormously polarized, sanitized view of a country that um, almost kind of seeps violence to its own. At the same time, it's still a beautiful tourist destination. It still provided me with some of the most peaceful and spiritual um, experiences that I've ever had in my life. I, I remember going to Kandy, a city in the center of Sri Lanka, 
and the temple of Buddha's tooth. And as I walked in there, honestly, I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I was engulfed in wave after wave of peace, tranquility, and a certain amount of sort of settling in my life. And it's a really weird but wonderful memory that I've got. So try and take all these memories, the violence, the children, the exploitation by the West, the disappeared, juxtaposed with the beauty, the peacefulness, the serenity, the lovely country, and in the main, the fantastic people. And you've got yourself a soup that is going to be so difficult to tease out all the different ingredients. And it's going to take a long, long time before that country settles. It's just some memories that I've had. And in social work and in combating child exploitation, I know that it's still a target area. I know that it's still a place that people go to abuse children. But at the same time, it's a beautiful island and a beautiful place. Well, we're now bringing this episode to a close. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Please visit www.socialworldpodcast.com or tweet us at Dave Niven. And if you like, please sign up for the regular newsletter. Thank you very much indeed for listening. See you next time.